Uh, brethren, again, your life and your doctrine. Before we finish, you're going to be dreaming about those two words. I trust so. Your life is absolutely essential and your doctrine is absolutely crucial. A good man with bad doctrine has a weak influence. A bad man with good doctrine may have a confusing influence. Our responsibility is by the grace of God to be growing as truly good men who have right doctrine and can clearly communicate it so that the people can plainly understand it. Now, when we talk about doctrine, we talked last night about its importance. There's so many wonderful truths in the Word of God. Uh, obviously, we're going to spend the rest of our life studying the Word of God, studying the great doctrines uh, concerning God and His great eternal saving purpose through Jesus Christ. We can approach theology both biblically, that is the progressive revelation of God's eternal purpose down the timeline of redemptive history, or we can look at it systematically and topically. One is the arrangement and unfolding of the Spirit of God as you trace the purposes of God down through history. The other is the somewhat artificial arrangement of man where he takes different important topics and arranges them in a systematic manner that can be clearly understood. And I encourage you to be committed to studying both biblical theology and systematic theology. Now, when we think about the important truths of the Word of God systematically, we have the doctrine of Scripture, we have the doctrine of God, we have the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, uh, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of sanctification. Each of these things and more are to be clearly understood and increasingly known in your life and clearly communicated in your preaching. Our time is short here for the just next several hours. And we can only survey what I consider is certainly one of the crucial doctrines in the Word of God that you and I must clearly understand in regards to seeing people truly converted and growing in the way of salvation. And that is, of course, the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation. I want to survey this very briefly in these next several points. And I want to look at the doctrine of salvation in three simple heads. Uh, I'll mention them now and then we'll look at them one at a time. Uh, don't write it down yet, brother. Uh, we want to talk about, number one, the necessity of salvation. Why is salvation necessary? Then we want to talk about, number two, the accomplishment of salvation. How was salvation accomplished? And then number three, we want to talk about the application of salvation. How is the work of Christ received in and applied to our own heart as sinners that become 
believers. You understand what we're saying? Now, this is a vast, vast subject. Our time is very, very short. We're serving this very briefly, just the bare bones of biblical truth regarding the doctrine of salvation. And our first point is the necessity of salvation. Why is salvation important? And we put a dash here because of man's sinful condition. Man's sinful condition. Before we understand uh, and communicate the gospel, we must understand the nature and need of man so that we can properly preach the truth. Now, the Bible in the New and the Old Testament is very clear, very honest about the nature of man, and that's why we know it is truly inspired of God, because it tells the truth about man. Now, the Bible says many things about man and his lost condition. Let me mention five of them very quickly. Number one, the Bible describes man as spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Number two, the Bible describes man as totally <coughs> depraved. Totally depraved. Now, as a consequence of that, the Bible also describes man as morally, uh, morally unable, a moral inability. Not only is something wrong with man's nature, there's something wrong with his record. He is, number four, legally guilty. He is legally guilty. If that were not bad enough, number five, he is in spiritual bondage. He is in spiritual bondage. Now, this is a very simple survey of what the New Testament teaches about the nature of man. And you need to understand that when you're speaking to men, you're speaking to men in this condition. It doesn't matter whether they're Chinese, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, or, or, or a Buddhist, or religious. They are in this particular condition. Now, what I want to do is survey this very quickly and give you several key verses <coughs> relative to each one of these points so that you may be sure that you are grounded in these things. Write these verses down. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let's just leave it at that right now. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2. No, that's not what we want. Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Luke chapter 9. And John chapter 5. It's a brief survey of what the Apostle Paul says in these two epistles and what Jesus himself says in regards to the nature and condition of man. Let's look very quickly at those particular verses. You are well familiar with them. Ephesians chapter 2. Now again, we're moving quickly, but we want to move surely so that we can plainly understand again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then again, he mentions it again in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now, death has the idea of separation. 
Uh, physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. A spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. Eternal death is the separation of body and soul from God forever. Death signifies separation. You are without God, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, without hope in this life. Colossians, quickly. Chapter 2. Paul says it again. Verse 13. Even when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Men were joined to sin. They're infected with sin. They're under the bondage and influence of sin. And their uncircumcised heart has never been opened by the spiritual circumcision that comes from the new birth. This is what Jesus teaches as well. Look in the Gospel of Luke, very familiar verse, chapter 9. Now again, we're surveying this very quickly. I encourage you to continually be studying the truth a good doctor is able to diagnose the true condition of the patient so that he is able to apply the proper solution. Your responsibility is to know the people to whom you speak. When you preach to men, I don't care where they are or who they are, you are speaking to dead men, spiritually dead, separated from God. Luke chapter 9. Notice quickly verse 57, Luke 9, verse 57. They were going along the road. Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered, verse 58, the foxes have hosts, birds the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay. He said to another, verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. What does Jesus say? Verse 60, allow the dead to bury their own dead. What does he mean? Allow those that are spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead. He's speaking symbolically of the condition of men that are apart from Christ. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and notice the text, and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God. Now notice verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. You got two kinds of dead men here and two kinds of resurrection. He said, an hour is coming and now is. When the dead, those that are spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. That is spiritual resurrection from spiritual death. And an hour is coming, he said, when those in the tombs 
physically dead at the last resurrection will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. Two kinds of dead men and two resurrections. Spiritually dead, spiritual resurrection. Physical dead, physical resurrection. One now in this life beginning in the preaching of Jesus. The other at the last day when he shall arrive. Now you understand what we're saying. Spiritually dead, they do not have the life of God within them. They are separated from God and consequently they are totally depraved. Now a man that's dead, what happens to his body? He begins to get corrupt and he's corrupt in every part of his being. And so when we talk about total depravity, this word total means every part of man inwardly and outwardly has been corrupted and influenced by sin. You understand what we're saying? Now this is a theological term to describe a spiritual reality. Every part of man. Now let's write a few verses down here. Ephesians, 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 Ephesians. <laughs> Young men, take notice. Now is the time to study because it flies away. Ephesians 4, is it not? Ephesians, no. Ephesians, well, I'll find it yet. Chapter 2. Yes, Ephesians chapter 2. But also Ephesians 4, let's write this down. Ephesians 4, verse 17, down to verse 19. A general description of men in regards to their condition. Also put it in Mark 7, what does Jesus say? Notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now we're talking about total depravity, every part of man inwardly. And when we talk about every part of man the Bible uses the word like the mind, the heart, and the will, and the conscience. This describes aspects of man's being, whereby he thinks, whereby he loves, whereby he chooses, and whereby he judges. The Bible says every part of man's being has been corrupted and polluted and defiled by sin. His mind is darkened, his heart is hardened, his will is bound, and his conscience is defiled. That's how the Bible describes men. Ephesians chapter 4, this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and have become callous. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greed. We have here the mind, verse 17, and understanding, verse 18, a spiritual death excluded from the life of God, the hardness of the heart, the defilement of their affections, verse 19, the callousness of their feeling as well as their conscience has been defiled. This is the description of man. 
And again, what did Jesus say? Mark 7, I believe. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all manner of wickedness and evil. What's wrong with the world? We got adultery. We got war. We got murder. We got stealing. We got jealousy. We got sinful ambition. We got pride. We got insecurity. Where does it come from? It comes from the heart of man. It has been corrupt and defiled. And his mind is darkened and his heart is hardened and his conscience is defiled. Titus and Timothy say the conscience is seared. It is seared so that men call evil good and good evil. Hear me carefully. I encourage you again for your own benefit and to understand yourself and to understand others to make a study of the New Testament teaching of the conscience both in the unbeliever and the believer. Study out what the Bible describes and how it describes man in this regard. Hear me carefully. His mind is darkened. Now man can understand, man is a genius because he's created in the image of God. That cell phone you hold in your hand is a creation of man and an expression of the image of God. Now you get uh, a monkey and you take that cell phone apart, lay it on a table, bring in 10 monkeys and tell them to put it back together. Will they do it? They'll bite it, they'll chew it, they'll jump on it, but they'll not put it back together. You bring in a man, tell him to put it back together. He'll put it back together. He's made in the image of God. He's a tragic genius. He can send a man to the moon. He can understand math, science, philosophy, he can produce all sorts of beautiful literature and poetry. He can do all of these things. He understands all of these things, but he cannot understand the things of God. Man's heart is defiled. He can love. He can truly love, but he will never love God. Now, his conscience tells him what is right and wrong, and some men have a strong conscience even as an unbeliever. His neighbor's wife entices him to come over, but he does not do it because he either fears the consequences or in his conscience the law of God is written in his heart, uh, but that doesn't mean he's converted. And hear me carefully. The most important thing to understand about man and where all salvation theology breaks down is in regards to his will. His will. Listen carefully. You must understand the difference, you ought to write this down, between absolute freedom of will and relative freedom of choice. Did you hear that? Absolute freedom of will and relative freedom of choice. There's only one couple in all of creation that had absolute freedom of will. Who was that? It was Adam and Eve. 
That is, they could of their own volition, from their own will, without outside influence, choose to obey and serve and follow God. But everyone since born of them has relative freedom of choice. What do we mean? They can choose anything they want to relative to the condition of their heart. They will choose anything they want to. He can choose a good thing. He can choose a bad thing, relatively speaking, but he will never choose God. Consequently, we have the thought of moral inability. Write these verses down. Romans chapter 8. Ah... First Corinthians, uh, is it First Corinthians? First Corinthians. Hold it. I apologize, brethren, for the fading memory. Chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Write this verse down. John chapter 3. John chapter 6. Now there's a word in the Bible that you must understand. And what is that word? Relative to the will of man. You heard it this morning. Not only he will not, but what? Cannot. He cannot. Now that is very clear in the Bible. Notice Romans chapter 8, very quickly, brethren. Romans chapter 8, Paul is comparing and contrasting those in the flesh and those that are in the spirit. Chapter 8, verse 6, mind set on the flesh, verse 6 is death. Mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh, notice four things. Number one, is hostile to God. Number two, does not subject itself to the law of God. Notice number three, uh, that it is not even able. That's a clear word in the Greek. Not just that he will not, he cannot. And those, verse eight, he says it again, cannot please God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's saying the same thing again. Verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This is what Jesus says in the famous interaction, John 3 with Nicodemus. Pay attention to the words. John 3, verse 3. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, verse 5, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
Again, John chapter 6, we're talking about man's moral inability. John chapter 6, verse 43, Jesus talking to the Jews. Do not grumble, verse 43, among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, the last verse in the chapter. For this reason I say to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now listen carefully. What's the modern thinking today? You tell men to repent and tell men to believe, then certainly if God commands men to repent and believe, he has the ability to repent and believe. Right? That's what they say. But hear me carefully. When we preach the gospel to men, we're telling them to do something they cannot do. We said that several days ago. We preach to men and tell them something they cannot do because man lost his ability to believe in the garden, but he did not lose his responsibility to believe. And when we preach to men, we don't preach to their inability. We preach to their responsibility. On the day of Pentecost, when they cried out to Peter, brethren, what must we do? What did Peter say? Well, there's nothing you can do. You're dead in sin. That's not what he said. What did he say? Repent and be baptized. The Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, well, there's nothing you can do. You're dead. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We preach to men's responsibility. You understand what we're saying? Not to their inability. We preach to men and tell them what they must do, not what they can or cannot do. So when you preach to men, you're preaching to men that are spiritually dead, they are totally depraved, and their mind is darkened, their heart is hardened, their conscience is defiled to one degree or another, and their will is bound. Remember those words, absolute freedom of will, relative freedom of choice. Men can choose different things. Men can choose some things that are relatively good, compared to what is relatively bad. As I said, a man chooses not to give in to the temptations of his neighbor's wife for one reason or another, either his conscience or his fear of the consequences. But he cannot choose God. He cannot choose absolute good because his mind is darkened and his heart is hard. He can love many things but he cannot love God according to the Word of God. You understand what we're saying? Now we're moving through this very quickly, but hear me carefully. These first three things have to do with man's uh, nature. Right here, he has a legal problem. Write these verses down. Uh, hold it. Uh, let's talk about Romans chapter 3. Uh, how about Galatians chapter, is it 2? Uh, uh, Galatians 3. Let's try James, uh, James 2.10, I believe. Listen carefully. 
Man has a problem in his nature, and he has a problem with a legal record. He has a problem in his relationship to God as righteous judge. Romans chapter 3, very quickly. Now you're familiar with this, but hear me carefully. All men stand in relationship to God in a legal capacity. Romans and chapter 3. There Paul says, in the conclusion of his extended prosecution and condemnation of all men, Jew and Gentile, comes to this conclusion, verse 19, chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are where? Under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now what law is he talking about? Look back in chapter 2. Chapter 2. And verse 21, he's speaking against the Jews. Verse 20, now you say you're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. You have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Do you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? That is a secret worship and longing for the things that are under an eye. What law is he talking about there? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. You're not talking about the ceremonial law. Hear me carefully. Whatever country you were born in, you were born under the law of that country, right? I was born in America. I was born under American law. Now, if I break the law, there are consequences. You break the law in your country, there are consequences. Break a little law, little consequence. Break a big law, big consequence. All humanity is born under a, a governing law in the particular place where they were born. God is our creator. He's the righteous judge. And all men are born under his law. And the law of God demands what? Perfect obedience. Because God is a perfect God. He's not going to grade according to the curve comparing one man to another. God is perfect and holy. His standard is perfect and holy. And His character and His requirements for a man are revealed in His nature, in His acts, as well as in His law. All humanity, He says here, are born under the law. Galatians chapter 3, very quickly. Now listen carefully. This is not theory. This is the true condition of men, though they know it not. Galatians chapter 3. Paul says this. Verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith, because those who practice them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law, became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. Verse 10, what is the requirement of the law? Perfect, absolute, total, universal obedience in mind, heart, will, conscience, eyes, ears, acts, because God is perfect. James says the same thing, James chapter 2, I believe, and verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one is guilty of them all. A man has a problem with his nature and he has a problem with the legal record. When a little baby comes into the world, he is born with a spiritual disease. When the mother has the baby, their first concern, does he have 10 fingers? Does he have 10 toes? Can he see with his eyes? Is this baby healthy? And once they see the baby is healthy and whole, they're very happy and very excited. But they don't realize that baby has a disease, a spiritual cancer that is rotting every part of his being from the moment of his birth. And not only that, there's something waiting for that baby when he breaks forth from the womb. His creator God and God's holy law is waiting for that baby. And that baby is born with a sinful nature and is born under the law of his creator. So when is the age of accountability? What do people say? Well, when our child is old enough to make a conscious moral choice, then they are pronounced to be sinners. Let me say to you, the Bible says, when they break forth from the womb, they are morally responsible. You get a little baby over here, and he's about a year old, as I said, and you tell him to come here, and he falls down, and you come to help him because you love him. Three years later, you tell him to come. What did he do? Mm -mm. I got two boys. One of them's 48 and the other one's 46. I got a daughter that's 30, 50. <laughs> the boys were young, about three years old and a year and a half. The little one hit the big one. Big boy came to me, brother hit me, brother hit me. I went to the brother, barely talk, can't talk. I said, you hit your brother? <laughs> Who taught him to lie? Who taught him to lie? Nobody taught him to lie. He's born a liar. He's born with a sinful nature and he's born under the law of God. And it doesn't matter whether that child is conscious of sinning or not, they are constituted sinners by nature and by their legal condition before God. You understand what we're saying? My wife takes care of children in China, and there's a several of them in there that are special needs, and they cannot think, and they are retarded in their thinking. And they can well, here's what they can do. They can't think, they can't read, they can barely talk. But there's one thing they can do. They can sin. <coughs> they can sin. 
They hit everybody, they bite everybody, they scratch everybody. Because they're sinners by nature and they are sinners legally before their creator. Now we could expand this, but hear me carefully. We must understand man has a two or even a threefold problem. He got a sinful nature that is imparted to him from his first father by ordinary generation or physical birth. But he has legal guilt, hear me carefully, that is imputed to him uh, from his first father's transgression. Man is condemned for three reasons. He has imputed to him the guilt of his father Adam's transgression. He has imparted to him the corruption of Adam's nature. And as a result of that, he begins to sin. But before that child consciously begins to commit his first sin, he is accountable before God from birth. That is man's condition. That man doesn't know that. He's under the law. And that law requires perfect obedience. And if you don't perfectly obey, the law prescribes punishment. That is the consequence of disobedience to the law of God. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheistic Chinese, whether you're a radical Muslim, whether you're an idolatrous Hindu, whether you are a, a, a demonically inspired Buddhist, whether you are a European Orthodox religionist or a Catholic, all men are born under the law of God. and born with a sinful nature. Very quickly, if that were not bad enough, they are in spiritual bondage to two things. What are those two things? They're in spiritual bondage to sin, uh, John chapter eight, and they're in spiritual bondage to the devil. Let's put in 2 Timothy 2, about 24. Now we could expand this. You need to study it and make sure uh, a doctor studies his medical book regarding the various disease, the diseases of man. We need to study our medical book regarding the various spiritual diseases and conditions of man. John chapter 8, look quickly, you're familiar with the verse. Jesus is talking to the Jews uh, that believe in him said they did. Jews said to those Jews, Jesus, verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciple. You know the truth and the truth will set you free. But they said, no, we're Abraham's descendants, verse 30, have never been enslaved to anyone, which they obviously have forgotten their history, 400 years in Egypt. How is it you say you become free? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Men are in bondage to sin. And what is sin? Listen carefully. It is unbelief in the mind. It is rebellion in the heart. It is disobedience in the life. That's the threefold cord of man's corrupt nature. He has an unbelieving mind. He has a rebellious heart. And as a result, he disobeys God's law. That is sin, unbelief, rebellion, and disobedience. 
That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They didn't believe God's word. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, they traded the glory of the incorruptible God. They listened to the devil. You will surely not die. It produced rebellion in their heart. The devil sought to produce within them a doubt of God's goodness. Consequently, they rebelled against God in their heart. And what was the result? They disobeyed his word. That's what sin is. Unbelief in the mind, rebellion in the heart, disobedience in the life. Men are in bondage to sin. Not only that, men are in bondage, as you know, to the devil. Look at the verse, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy and chapter 2. Paul is speaking to us regarding how we ought to relate to those that oppose us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And the result is that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We are of God, John says, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan has a temporary, limited influence in this world under the strange sovereign purpose of God, where he allows, ordains, and permits the expression of sinful men and the activity of the devil for the further purposes of his ultimate glory. This is very difficult to understand, but it is nonetheless true. You meant it for evil, Joseph said in the Old Testament. Man's sin, God meant it for good. God permitted the devil to attack Job. God permitted the devil uh, to put, stir up the Jews and the Gentiles to put Jesus to death, but it was according to the predetermined and foreordained plan of God. Uh, God, Christ, permitted the devil access to sift Peter like wheat. Uh, God permitted access to the devil to put a thorn in the flesh to Paul the apostle. Listen carefully. God is ultimately sovereign over all. And he permits and allows and even appoints at times the activity of sin by men while himself not being the active agent in its performance. You understand what we're saying? This is a great, great mystery. But men are in bondage to sin and in bondage to the devil. They are legally guilty. They got a problem with God's law. They are totally unable and depraved. They have a problem with their nature. And they are separated from God. Years ago, when I first went to China, we went to a little orphanage. And orphanages back in China in the late 90s were not a good place. And there was a little girl in there maybe about 12 years old, blind, deaf, and dumb. Couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't speak. 
And she sat over in the corner all the time, like this. And when I saw her, my heart just broke. She couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't speak. And I went over and touched her. And when I touched her, she came out like a wild animal, biting, kicking, scratching, uttering screams, almost unutterable. She didn't know I cared for her. She didn't know I was concerned for her. Now, my friend, when you talk to sinners, that's who you're talking to. They're blind, they're deaf, they're dumb, their heart is hardened, their will is bound, their conscience is defiled. And you try to touch them, and all hell may break loose. <coughs> Only God can open their mind, open their eyes, change their heart, free their will, cleanse their conscience. When you preach, you're preaching to dead men. And you ought to ask, like, God asked Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Lord, only you know. So what's the preacher's responsibility we said the other day? Speak to the bones. Speak to the bones. And God may be pleased to give life. Clear the mind, open the eyes, cleanse the heart, free the will by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. Hear me carefully. When men oppose you, when they criticize you, when they war against you, don't see them as they're acting now. See them as God sees them. See them as that poor little pitiful blind, deaf, dumb girl. I don't care how much they bite and scratch. I don't care how bad they look. And they may never come to Christ. But our responsibility is to love them, to pray for them, to show the love of God, to share to them the truth of God, and to be an example before them. And God may be pleased to grant them repentance, that they will come to the knowledge of the truth, come to their senses, and escape the snare of the devil, and be freed from the bondage of sin. Whether it's atheism, or false religion. This is the condition of all men. Any questions or comments on what we've said? Yes. Well, that's what most people think. Because man cannot believe, he's not responsible to believe. If you tell men you must repent and must believe, then obviously he has the ability to do so. But as we said, listen carefully, man lost that ability in the garden, as we've said before. The ability freely of his own pure will to obey God. He could have done it, but he sinned of that old will under the temptation of the devil, and his mind was darkened, and his heart was hardened, and his eyes were opened and yet closed at the same time and he was in the bondage of sin. We preach to men's responsibility 
and we tell them to do something they cannot do. You remember what we said? Jesus told the man with the withered hand what? Stretch out your hand. He had no ability to stretch out it. He'd been trying to stretch out his hand for years, as I said. But with the command, Jesus gave the power to obey what Jesus said, and he stretched out his hand. Uh, he told the lame man, get up from your pallet and walk. He'd been laying there, what, 38 years? He could not get up. Jesus told him to do something he could not do. Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus in the tomb, dead as a hammer, can't see, can't hear, can't believe, can't walk, can't talk. He is dead physically. Jesus comes and commands him to do something he cannot do. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus in his own strength, his own deadness, his own blindness, his own absolute corruption of his body, he stinketh, has no ability to come forth. But with the command, Lazarus, life. Into a dead body. And what's the first thing Lazarus does? He comes to Jesus. That's a picture of the relationship of regeneration and conversion. One is an act of God, the other is the response of man. In regeneration, man is totally passive. In conversion, man is active. Hear me carefully. If we don't understand the nature of man, we will preach to them in such a way as to come up with weak methods and message that will lead them to a false decision and an empty conversion. But our responsibility is to preach the gospel that is the power of God. And God may be pleased to raise the dead. Hear me. Preach to their responsibility not to their ability. Do you understand the difference between absolute freedom of will? Only two people had that, Adam and Eve. <clears throat> Relative freedom of choice. A man can choose anything he wants to choose, but he will never choose anything contrary to the condition of his own heart. If he wants to go to Kuala Lumpur and get a job, he can go to Kuala Lumpur. If he wants to buy a new car, he can buy a new car. If he wants to marry this woman, he can marry this woman. If the boss tells him to steal, he says, I don't want to steal. He can choose relative good, but he will never choose God. Because his heart is hardened, his will is bound, and he's spiritually dead. And a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Burn that word in your brain. Cannot, cannot, cannot. What we tell lost people if they're under the conviction of sin is to tell them what Jesus said and what Peter said and what Paul said. Repent and believe. Uh, Peter didn't give a lecture on the nature of man on the day of Pentecost. <laughs> uh, Paul didn't give a lecture to the Philippian jailer uh, at Philippi. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. 
Now there are times when Jesus told the Pharisees, you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He said, you're not one of my sheep. I give my life for the sheep. So at certain times, we need to tell a religious person that they have an inability to obey God's law. Uh, their Muslim code, uh, their Buddhist morality, uh, their, their, their Hindu uh, uh, beliefs uh, have nothing to do with the law of God. They have to understand there's one God. He is a creator God. He is a righteous judge. And all men, I don't care where they are, are born under his law. Whether they know it or not, whether they care about it or not, they are under his law. And if you break the law one time, you're guilty of it all. And there's condemnation of the law. Cursed is everyone that doesn't abide by all the things. So by and large, we preach to men what they must do, not what they can't do. We don't necessarily give a full description of man's nature when we preach to men. So these doctrines are for believers? Primarily to instruct believers so they can understand the condition of men and not trust in themselves, their words, their gift, their methodology, but trust in the power of God and the Spirit of God by the Word of God to be able to speak to a dead man and bring him to life. It all rises or falls in regards to a right understanding of the doctrine of salvation dependent upon our understanding of man's condition, most specifically man's will. Cannot, but must. Cannot, but must. We preach and tell men what they must do. Repent and believe the gospel and let God do the rest. You understand what we're saying? Brother, you'd agree with that. So, sir, in unconverted person, can we see any undefiled image of God? So, also, the, uh, in the converted person, what are the undefiled uh, characteristics, characteristics of the image of God? Very quickly, look at the book of Colossians. Hey, I, I believe this, that in an unconverted man, you can see the, 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 uh, the shadows and the marred image of God. As I said before, you see this machine right here? That's an expression of man being created in the image of God. Man has a limited ability to create. That is part of the image of God. The image of God is, is sovereignty. The image of God is purity. The image of God is creativity. Man can create. I mean, this is unbelievable. Is it not? It's a testimony to man's genius. but he cannot understand God. So the and that's what's so sad. So the creativity of man, is it the uh, 
No, it cannot be undefiled. It, it is defiled, the image of God. But the, the light still shines through the cracks of corrupt man. Now, the Bible says there's nothing good in man. That's absolute good according to the standards and convictions of God. There is relative good in man. A man can be nice to his wife and be lost as a goose. A man can love his children and be unconverted. A man can be honest at work but be lost. That's what the old theologians call hyper-Calvinism. Calvinism gone bad. Since man doesn't have the ability to believe, we don't have the responsibility to preach to them. But our responsibility to the lost is governed by the commandments of the Word of God, not the condition of lost men. You see what we're saying? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when they went out and preached the gospel, whether it was Peter on the day of Pentecost to the Jews, whether it was Paul in Athens on Mars Hill, they had a slightly different persuasion because Peter knew the Jews knew the law. Uh, Paul started further back with the Gentiles in regards to God's uh, sovereignty, God's power, God's creative abilities. But what does it say? God, having looked, overlooked the former times of ignorance, is now declaring to all men that there's absolutely nothing they can do, so you just sit and wait until God has mercy on you. Is that what he said? God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they repent. He preached to them what they must do. And simply because man can't do it, doesn't mean he has lost the responsibility to do it. You understand what we're saying? You preach to men what they must do. You tell them who God is and who they are and what Christ has done is the only hope to make them right with this God and you tell them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and turn from idolatry, from self-righteousness, from good works, turn to God in Jesus Christ and hope solely and wholly on His sacrificial, substitutionary, propitiating, redeeming, reconciling work on the cross. And some will believe. Some will believe. Not everyone. Some will believe. And why does some believe? Paul told the Jews, Acts 14, 13. Why are you always, no, Stephen, you, you, you resist the Holy Spirit. We're turning to the Gentiles. And when Paul began to preach, the Gentiles rejoiced, and as many as had been ordained to eternal life believed. Now, my friend, hear me. If you don't believe in sovereign election from all eternity, you got no hope in your ministry. You hear me? You can't raise the dead. You can't give them life. 
God can. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and I follow them. What's our responsibility? To preach the gospel, to scatter the seed, and God will save sovereignly who he wills, men from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue. Now the verse doesn't say, Luke doesn't say, and as many who believed were then ordained to eternal life. That's not what he says. Their belief did not lead to that ordination from all eternity. They believed because they had been ordained from all eternity. That's our only hope. Yes? Oh, brother, can I just say something really quick? Certainly. Encourage the brother. You don't know what a track's going to do. Hmm. You can give a track, and someone could find that 10 years from now, five years from now in their pocket. You don't know who's going to pick it up on the street. You don't know how God's going to use it. So you might not see the fruit right away, but God can use those tools that you do with the evangelism. That's exactly right. Our responsibility is to scatter the seed, water it with prayer, shower it with love, and leave the consequences to God. Any other questions? I understand. I struggle with it for about 15 years. You keep struggling, brother, and keep thinking. But let me ask you this. Can you raise the dead? Can you raise the dead? No, I'll answer for you. Only God can raise the dead. Yes, most men, man has the responsibility to believe, therefore he must have the ability to believe. That's not right. How can he anymore because he's nothing? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We'll talk about that next hour. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we humbly acknowledge that such were some, no, such were all of us. And at some point in our life, you gave us life. And we believed, whether like Timothy or like Paul. And we believe today in the only begotten Son of you, the living God, and that so great salvation. Give us understanding, Lord. We feel as Paul, who is sufficient for these things? We can't raise the dead. Let us speak to the bones out of compassion and pity and love with truth that alone by the Spirit of God can raise the dead and give them those two great gifts from above of repentance toward you and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us confidence that where we are yet, you have some, perhaps many in that city and we will labor with faith that your will shall be accomplished. Your sheep will hear your voice. And as our brother reminded us, sometimes the hardest, most resistant heart, as we've heard these testimonies,
that said, I don't believe and I will not believe. And yet they sit here today believing because you opened their heart. We give you the glory. Now strengthen us now and give us a deeper understanding and a compassionate pity toward the condition of all these men out on this street that are walking dead men under your law, under your wrath, under your condemnation, and they know it not. God, have mercy and use us in the lives of many. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.